Hello and welcome to the Magpie Talk Show, a podcast about technology. I'm your host, Sam Newman. This week I'm talking to Adrian Cockcroft. Welcome to episode 21 of the Magpie Talk Show. Uh, This week we have Adrian Cockcroft on the show. Uh, Many of you may have heard of Adrian, uh, and probably only through his work as the cloud architect at Netflix, uh, where he's been responsible for popularizing an awful lot of uh, fantastic ideas that came out of that company's journey onto the cloud. Um, But Adrian has a very long, distinguished career for going much further back than that, and we explore a lot of that in today's episode. I've been very fortunate to have Adrian as someone I can uh, bounce ideas off uh, around my own work in microservice areas for for many years now, and I was very grateful that he found the time to sit down with me. And I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did um, recording it. So this is probably going to be my last interview of Yao. It might, there might be another one. Uh, and I'm here with uh, Adrian Cockcroft, who was doing a, um, using a keynote on, uh, on, com- it's on complicated. It, it is complicated. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. It's complicated to remember the fact that I called my talk, it's complicated. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll be talking about that in a minute. But um, uh, Adrian, you've done quite a, quite a lot of things. We've done each other, I suppose, through conferences and the like for a while. Uh, I suppose you're quite well known for work at um, uh, the Java performance tuning stuff, and then um, more, you know, then at Netflix and more recently at Battery Ventures. But maybe you could, I, I, that's, have I done a bad job of your CV? Have I captured that correctly? Is that a good summation? Um, yeah. So uh, I guess the question I like asking everybody is, what made you into Asian? What got you into computing in the first place? Yeah. Well, um, so this. In my case, it was through my father. He was a uh, in the Navy for a while. Then he was a scientific officer, and he was testing anti-aircraft missiles in the Mediterranean, and uh, had me. Um, the, and um, so that was a long time ago. I'm quite old. So this was, that was in 1960, and then he came back and he did a uh, mature. What do you call it? Mature degree. Yeah. You know, he was uh, he was in his mid twenties. Mature student. Mature student. Mature student. So he did his degree at University of Wales, and statistics. I mean, the the Admiralty paid for him to go do that. So he sort of disappeared for large chunks of the time when I was growing up to go off and do this degree. And at the time, he was playing around with a thing called an Elliott eight hundred three. He showed me a picture of it recently. It's a room sized computer with eight k core eight k words of memory or something. And it made funny noises, and it had discrete transistors in it, you know, and core memory, one of those things. Um, and he did statistics on it. So that, and he was doing interesting programming stuff, right? Um, he then got a job at um, University of Hertfordshire, or Hatfield Polytechnic, as it was called, in the late 60s. So we moved there, and it was they, they then installed the largest educational computer in Europe as it was at the time in 1970, a sort of a million dollar or something, DEC System 10. And then I went to the local high school in 72, and one of the things they had was a teletype and a, a per, not a modem, not a dial-up modem, a permanent landline modem at 300 board or something horrible. And you could chunk, 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 and it, it would do these things. And you could sign up at lunchtime or a morning break, or you could go out and play football, 
or you could sign up and sit there with the basic and all the computer manuals and try and teach yourself or play Lunar Lander, which is what I actually started off with. So you started off playing Lunar Lander because this was like moon rockets and yeah. things was obviously late 60s was a sort of happening thing. Um, Lunar Lander, if anyone hasn't seen it, I'm sure the game is still around. It's all game where you have to decide how much fuel to you to squirt at the moon to slow yourself down. If you don't, if you use too much fuel, you fly off into space. If you don't use enough, you impact the surface, and you have to kind of figure out, you know, guess how much fuel to put in to slow yourself down and actually land. So, sort of very simplified Kerbal Space Program. Simplified to the point where it's on a teletype with a roll of paper coming up and you just type in the number and you get the line that says, and, and they get one line back saying you are now moving at this speed and you think, okay, I'm going to give you this much fuel next time. And it's, anyway, basic. It was really basic. I'm pretty sure someone's ported it to JavaScript right I'm the sure it's. I'm sure you, there's a DEX System 10 emulator written in JavaScript somewhere that can run Dartmouth basic or something. Anyway, so I basically taught myself basic basically. Um, got bored with that and then I was looking to do other things. I taught myself Algol. Um, it's a bit confusing but I figured I was basically didn't had any classes. I was just learning it myself. My father would sort of encourage me sort of various ways but not really help me write code or anything. Um, and at some point you had to choose which subjects you were going to study and I decided not to study computing. Um, in the mid-70s, because the advice I got was, you already know how to program, you're just going to get bored. Um, go learn something more interesting. So I did physics, because I figured physics is going to be the same for a long time, and you can use programs to do stuff that yeah. physics, like physics is a thing that you will write programs about. So that was sort of philosophically age 13 or something. I wanted to be um, scientists primarily, and so I went off and did physics and sort of chemistry and stuff like that. And then um, my dad started bringing home computers. I think the first computer that he brought home was, well, there was a, a, a calculator, a digital calculator was the first one, a sharp computer or something. Um, but the first real computer he brought home was one of the original Commodore PETs. 8K of RAM, tape drive, calculator keyboard, tiny little screen. And we, one Christmas I was playing chess against it because I was a, played chess in it. So that was my kind of um, intro to it. Then I went to college and went to university and did physics and didn't really, it was kind of very, it was pure physics, it was at Oxford, it wasn't, didn't work out that well. It wasn't really what I was interested in. I went to Oxford because I passed the Oxford entrance exam primarily. Right. <laughs> okay. And I thought at one point I wanted to be an, a, a black hole, you know, astrophysicist and it turns out the math is too hard and I, my brain stops operating somewhere in the yes. progress of figuring out this mathematics. So um, I, I can do basic, you know, I can do physics, but there was a point somewhere beyond Green's theorem where my brain turns to mush and I can't do this tensor stuff. But computers are much easier. Computers it turns out are easier, yeah. So I basically, I did a year at Oxford and then didn't do well enough to kind of, the question of whether I should was in the right place was raised. I got a pass in my first year, moved on, went to the City University in London and went into the second degree of an applied physics and electronics class where there was 6800 microprocessors and PDP-11 bus architecture and um, building machinery and controlling it and making little circuits and things was lasers and mm -hmm. stuff. It was much more interesting. So I did two years of that, graduated, built a maze-solving robot um, micro-mouse thing in my final year project. Um, 6800 assembler, maze-solving algorithm in 4K of RAM or something. Anyway, 
Um, that worked fine. And then and somewhere along the way, I had a summer job where I was writing some, on an Apple II, writing something or other. I got a job at uh, Cambridge Consultants. This in the early 80s. Um, there was sort of a recession. Everyone's coming out of a little recession. And they were like desperate people. And they didn't normally hire new graduates. Mm. But they had a period where they were hiring a few new graduates. And I managed to sneak in somehow. Um, contract R&D company. I was there five years building embedded real-time systems, most mixed, mostly in C. Um, at college, one of the systems we used was a PDP-11 with Unix version 6 on it, and we bought a Microsoft Xenix running wow. on a PDP-11 was the first commercial Unix. Microsoft used to be Unix company. Yep. Um, and then we bought some Sun workstations, and I, I had this thing where I managed to show that I knew a little bit about Unix by playing a silly trick on somebody and then they put me in charge of the Unix machines. <laughs> it's a good policy. I don't know if that's a really good policy, yes. but it worked. Um, so I was like one day a week, part-time sysadmin, and the other four days a week I was a developer. That's DevOps. Uh, I see, yes. So DevOps 1983. Um, and I would be you know, mostly putting new, more paper in the printer and trying to figure out you know, where, where make sure the backups worked and things yeah, like that. Yeah, back when ops meant ops. Yeah, I, I, had, a, I had Sun machines and I was and you was plugging boards into them and upgrading disks and talking to Sun. This is the early days of Sun, 84 and 85. One of the first customers of Sun UK. Back when you could, if I called up the Sun helpline, they actually recognized my voice because they had so few customers at that point. <laughs> um, and then I played around with transputers for a bit, learned OCAM, which I'll come back to later if we get time. Um, which is a parallel processing language, started trying to build a massively parallel computer because that's what you did in the mid-80s and um, stuff like that. Did a bit of Fortran and Pascal and other, but mostly embedded system, real-time development stuff. Um, not mostly coding from the reset vector upwards on a piece of hardware. And then uh, joined Sun. Uh, in 88, they opened an office across the street and I kind of beat the doors down for a bit till they let me join because I wanted to find out what was going to happen next, what yeah. Sun Machines were going to happen next and got on the inside and became, uh, they had a, ser a specialization series where the top two or three people in each country in a certain area would go into training. So I was called, a, they called it a Spark Ambassador program initially or Technical Ambassadors, they changed the name, but I was basically the hardware specialist for Sun in the UK. There were a couple of us, but I, w I ended up as sort of the main one. And then after a few, about another five years of running around with a sales rep wearing a suit in a company car, quite fun at times, um, uh, which was also a bit weird when you went back to the place where I was a developer wearing the suit and feeling a bit odd, out of place. Yeah. Um, so I learned all the enterprise sales and stuff. So in 93, um, I'd written a white paper for a Sun user group. Okay, going to conferences can get you into trouble. Um, I didn't know that this paper was only supposed to be 12 pages long, so I sent in 64 pages of Sun performance tuning hit, hints and tips. So that got stuck on an FTP server because this is 1980 whatever it was, um, about 1990, I think. And so I had ended up with about a 120-page white paper after I'd revved it a few times that people were reading. And that got me a job in the US. So in 93, moved to the US, turned the paper into a book that got published in 94, 90, second edition in 98. So that's the Sun Performance Tuning book. 
So be careful about user groups and writing papers for conferences. They can get out of control. Yes. They can get you jobs in other countries. <laughs> they can get you eventually that book. I don't know. I was making stuff up. I was a physicist, so I was looking at the behavior of the Unix kernel and via the via VM stat, which was numbers wiggling around yeah. and had this black box theory of what was really going on. When I finally got access to source code, I went and read where those numbers came from and had a better theory. Um, and eventually became sort of the, uh, the, the uh, person of last resort that you'd call when you could, nobody could figure out what was going on with this machine. Um, and knew so, more about how it behaved than the people that were building it. So I was never a kernel developer, but I actually knew more about how the kernel behaved in real life in some ways. Having that different um, viewpoint though, I mean, coming from a physics background, which is sort of, it's technical, it requires sort of rational thought and I suspect well, a lot the, more scientific. It's the scientific method, right? Yeah. So you set up experiments and one of the problems I see with developers is that they'll, they'll benchmark something by inventing a test, running it, and then writing down the number they got and saying, like, this is the number. It says, but why did you get that number? Okay, it took 100 seconds to run this thing. Well, why? What was it doing for that 100 seconds? And they don't dig in. So the physics thing is, okay, that 100 seconds was made up of, you know, 48 seconds of CPU time, so many seconds of IO wait, so, you know, on disk, so much time waiting for network or whatever. You break it down and, you know, you know which piece of code was it? So there's this, there's this decomposition and drilling in and coming up with a model for what, why it did it. And when you do that, usually you find that your benchmark's completely broken. And it's not actually measuring the thing you thought you were measuring, and that's so common. But the, the sort of physics mentality will lead you into the questions you need to ask to get into that, because mm -hmm. you want to build a deep, more physical model of what's going on, rather than sort of, I see this thing observing in this way and I'm done, sort yeah. of mental. So, so I like people to dig in. And if, if you talk to most of the performance-oriented people in computing and find out, what did you do at college? It's often physics. There's an awful lot of physicists uh, like Neil Gunther, who's quite well known, queuing theory, wrote a bunch of books. He's a solid state physicist. Oh, right. I, I, I've met a, an odd number of people who've done Latin, a few mm -hmm. astrophysicists. Yep. Uh, James Lewis, I think, did astrophysics yep. at, uh, at King's. Yep. Uh, I was sort of very old school, I just did software engineering. So I sort of had to, uh, there's a lot of stuff that... I went on a course to teach me to be a software engineer. Did the Jordan DeMarco books and data oh flow God. design. Yes, did all so that. everything I did was data flow design. But, and then I'm, since I'm an Occam programmer, everything was data flow anyway, because I have channels. And now I play around with Go, and my Go programs look like Occam. Occam programs, yeah. And so some, everything comes, although it's all cyclical. Preston told me that I should have been writing this stuff in, in Erlang, but... You know. He always says that. He, he always says that. Well, there was that whole thing, you know, when I started getting interested in closure and realizing it's just a lisp, and we've had one of those since 1953. So it's not like we're we just really like reinventing these wheels and you get yeah. these patterns coming up again and again. I think as every one of these things comes back around again, we get a little bit better at it, I hope. Yeah. In some senses, I'm very untrained. I mean, I had a book called Algorithms by Sedgwick, which was like, okay, I read through that, and okay, I get some of these sorting algorithms and things like that. Um, remember that book and there were a few other books that taught me sort of the more structured programming kind of stuff but mostly I'd say I'm more of a self-taught programmer and some of the more computer science-y stuff uh, it still kind of goes right by me. I, I, t I, I always go to JavaScript presentations at these events and I walk out horrified and glad that I'm not trying to do anything in JavaScript. It's something about programming where there are landmines all around you and if you step slightly to the wrong place it blows up. I, I, for some reason I, I don't think like that. I want a language which is going to kind of have a 
sort of safer place to be that's going to have a bit more of a type system. So I'm, I'm generally in the strongly typed language class. In fact, Occam is one of the most insanely strongly typed languages that anyone ever made. It's like a, getting anything to compile is hard work. I mean, is, it is the type, is, is that just about having some level of rigor that your programs are actually going to work? Is that the thing that, get, that you like about types? Or is it the fact uh, that you can... It's just the way my, my mind works, I guess. I, I've written, I wrote, somewhere along the way, I, I ported the, the Dr. Dobbs small C compiler code generator from 8080 to 6809 in my spare time. So at that point, I have a, I have a C code, code generator in my head. So I look at C code and I see like registers moving around. And I, I kind of, if the language gets too far away from that, on JavaScript, I have no idea what's actually going on in memory. I want to be able to understand what's going on at some more physical level. And I then, so I tend to write, and people accused me of writing Java code when I was doing that, that looked like C code and ran too fast and didn't use enough objects, right? Because <laughs> I was basically writing C code in Java, using a Java compiler. I suspect a lot of JavaScript programmers who know JavaScript inside and out have no idea what's happening in yeah, memory either. I so have no like, idea what's going on. All I know is that you know, Chrome uses gigabytes of memory on my laptop. Um, I mean, that's, to do trivial looking things. That said, I was a terrible C programmer. As somebody who did have a proper, theoretically a proper uh, computer science type degree behind me, I my first job, uh, aside from a lot of Fortran, I was doing a lot of C programmers. And I would hazard a guess that probably a good 70 to 80% of my time was spent dealing with memory allocation issues. So I, I was a heavy user of Purify, yep. which is why many people love Netflix because of how great it is to scream stuff. And I think that's the best thing that Reed Hastings has ever done. I, I disagree well, fundamentally with Purify. A, as a use case, yeah. So all the people that bought Purify made that company successful so that Reed got bought eventually by Rational and by IBM and had a big exit so that he could start Netflix. So thank you, you Purify users, for creating Netflix indirectly. So for people that don't know, Purify is, is a tool that allows you to see well, the way in which we were using it was tracking down where Sam had forgot to properly clean up memory in his programs and telling the yes. line of code where it happens from, which is amazing. At that time, it was one of the most productive pieces of the tool chain I All had available C++ to. and C yeah. code. Yeah, yeah, debugging. It was a very, very powerful tool. I used it occasionally as well at the time. So, so what got you, so, so how did you end up at Netflix? I mean, what was the... Uh... Um, so I was at Sun in the US. Um, had, I started off in technical marketing. I then moved to the performance team. We did a book, there was a point, there was a team that wrote books, so there were a couple more books came out, but they were blueprint, sun blueprint books that were written more as my day job than as my part-time evenings and weekends job. Right. Um, and then I ended up in the performance, well, in the high performance computer. Actually, I did a Six Sigma thing. I was a Six Sigma black belt. I have all the training, I'm certified. So I know all of those tricky techniques, which is actually like a statistics refresher class for me. It's actually quite useful. Um, although Six Sigma kind of has a bad name for some people, but it has its use cases. It's, if, if you understand when to use it, it's very powerful. Um, and then the High Performance Computing Group needed an architect, and a friend of mine was running it, and he said, would you believe the architect? So I took over. So for the last couple of years at Sun, I was the chief architect for HPC, and I got to play with InfiniBand and Miranet and big racks full of Linux machines being controlled by Solaris machines. And, jumbo frames on internet, on, on ethernets and things. Um, it's all quite fun. And uh, then they laid off that entire division in 2004. Um, so I got a nice exit. Thank you for to giving me six months salary to go away and play with my kids for a summer. And I 
as they were leading me off, I called up some people I knew at eBay, and they said, "Sure, we'll hire you." Um, just you know, okay, I'll start in September, and this was in June yeah. or something, June or July. So I just took the summer off, got married, bought a house, um, played with the kids, fixed stuff up, and my green card came through at just the right moment. Actually, two weeks after I got married, but um, to an American, but um, you know just after I'd left, before I technically left Sun, but yeah, just yeah. in time, so so that was cool. And then ended up in uh, eBay in their operations architecture group, um, just having some fun times there. Then they created a, um, a research lab where I did, played around with a few things. I actually dug out my Occam jobs and wrote a simulator for peer-to-peer -peer trading system, which is, I have a bunch of patents on, because um, that's what research labs do. Yep, the thing patents. was never implemented, but the patents are out there, and probably one day Facebook will infringe on them or something, because it's basically a social network trading system. Um, and that's the code that I re resurrected in Go when I was trying to learn Go, and that became Spigo, which is my, uh, what do I call it, um, simulate protocol interactions in Go is why I called it that. But that's the thing I have on GitHub, that's your jellyfish. That generates my jellyfish diagrams of microservices. Although it can be used by the uh, Flying Spaghetti Monster module architecture to generate large seas of pirates in a social network, which you can then use for real user monitoring or RUM, obviously, um, to talk to the rest of the network. That's a very bad pun. It is a very bad pun. And I I've yet to fully implement it, but it's on its way. I've, I've actually not implemented the RUM code that I need to. They do have gold coins, though, which they give to each other. Um, I will make sure there's a link to Spigo and have you got the right. videos of the, well, it's probably, we could yeah, do an animated gif of your jellyfish or something. Um, yeah, yeah. So you spent a lot of time at Netflix as the architect then and sort of... Uh, yeah, so I went back to that. I was at eBay and after a few years in the research lab, figured out that research labs have trouble delivering stuff. Yeah. So I went to Netflix where there isn't a research lab because everyone's a researcher and ran the team that was building the homepage initially and then the team that was doing some of the integration of all of the different personalization algorithms into the final list of movies, which is called Lolomo, list of list of movies, which uh, Dave Hahn was talking about. And I said, no, I, I think I actually came up with the word Lolomo. It was me or somebody on my team and everyone hated it and no one could think of a better name. So back in 2008 or something, lists of lists of movies is the output of this algorithm. So I ran the, the Lolomo team for a while. And then we moved that whole thing to the cloud in 08 and yeah. um, switched over and then we hired a VP of cloud and he wanted the chief architect. So I became the chief architect. And then uh, Randy Shoup, who's also at this conference, who I knew from eBay, yeah. said there's this conference in San Francisco called QCon and I run a track called Architectures I've Always Wanted to Hear About and Would You Come and Talk About Netflix? So the first real public talk I did on the Netflix architecture was QCon San Francisco 2010. Mm. And it kind of, that kept going you know, with a totally baffled audience pretty much at that point. But, but now you, you guys are crazy. And then the same basic talk, people don't think it's crazy anymore, they've all implemented it. Well, that is the thing, because one of the things that obviously has happened at Netflix is not just the talks, and uh, I think it's been great to see not just you, but other people from the company talking about the real problems and challenges that you've had. Um, but it's also been all the open source software that's come out of Netflix that yeah. people have, are implementing your ideas and the ideas from other people at Netflix just by virtue of using the software without really 
Yeah. So, no. At one level, we were testing the architecture by open sourcing it. Right? So if we release this and people, we see what people liked and what they adopted and what they didn't adopt. And if they ran away from some piece of the architecture, probably there's a reason for that. We might want to think about whether there's better ways of doing things. So taking, taking your architecture to a conference and discussing it is a great way of getting feedback on it. Yeah. And that it also is a great way of influencing people you haven't hired yet to turn up with an idea what the architecture should look like. And it, this goes back to writing that book about Solaris performance mm -hmm. tuning. Um, it had a bigger influence in some ways on what the rest of Sun thought of, what, of me than it did almost on the customers. Um, and it helped, um, it turns out if you want to influence people in your company, publishing something outside your company actually has more weight than sticking it on a wiki page and, or writing a document or doing an internal presentation. And it's, it shouldn't really be take that, but psychologically, external publishing, writing a book, you, yes. as you know, yes. yeah. Yeah, as writing, writing a book, you, you then regret the thing that's written in the book and you want to change it and everyone says, no, it's in the book. I know I wrote those words. No, no, we don't do that anymore. No, but it's in the book. You have to do that because the book says so. And I get, I get those, and you're probably running into a few things where you wished you'd put something slightly differently. It is this whole problem, of course, which is, which you get to an extent even, you know, it's a lot of what you talk about is within a given context. And often people also want to change the context in which they use stuff. And there's an extent with that, I see that with Netflix stuff, is because I have conversations with clients. They say, yeah, we want an architecture more like Netflix architecture. And it's like, we have the conversation, which is, are you a video streaming company? And then... Well, the way I say it, do you have a systems of engagement? It's customer engagement system, right? That's what the Netflix architecture is really about. If you have a highly available systems, system of engagement, that's what they usually call it mm -hmm. as a category, then that's what it is. I mean, it's not really a video streaming system. It's a series of APIs and web pages designed to be globally distributed and extremely highly available. Sometimes that, that's what you want. Like Nike, that's what they wanted for all the fuel bands and, yeah. and Apple Watches running around the world, right? Um, IBM used it for Watson back end. So there's a few cases where people were kind of, okay, this, this makes sense. But and I think for IoT-like stuff, it makes some kind of sense that you need highly available endpoints and scalable architectures. So I don't think it, it, it's got, it is fairly broadly applicable. The bits of the architecture that I don't talk about that much, although other people from Netflix do, are like the data science back end, how all yeah. those pipelines work. And there's a lot of stuff there. Um, how the, the encoding systems work, they just published in the tech blog uh, how their encoding mm. system works. So there's lots of other pieces that, that are relevant. The, it doesn't look necessarily much like a sort of a heavy retail site because the, the transactional stuff is not um, driving per, per view charges. So, so you could do, but it's not really sort of, you know, you'd probably want to structure things a little bit differently if you're doing that. And, and then there's a sort of batch event stream processing system for triggering sequences of business transformations, which actually does exist at Netflix, but we've never really talked about, about it. The personalization system is actually an event flow, event propagation, CEP-like system. I mean, there is a, there's an extent to which you, you can, some of the tools that you've been pulled from the Netflix stack, it's sort of, uh, some of these things work well by themselves, and some of them really work well together as well. Yeah. So there is this sort of concept of Netflix OSS in a way, people just buying into the stack yeah. wholesale. 
Yeah, I wanted to give it one name rather than being Asgard plus a whole bunch of other names you can't pronounce or spell. Um, so the, we had a little internal debate and I said, it needs a name. And Netflix OSS, and they went, yeah, that's good enough. All right, so that was the branding. And then I basically sort of product managed it by saying, okay, we need these pieces because these are foundational building blocks. Let's get them out. And then, it's, then we can start layering some of the more high-level components on that. And we end up with something that looks like an architecture. The problem with it originally was that I get this technical indigestion problem that you can't, and it takes too long to understand all the bits. Yeah. Right? Uh, they've tried to fix that since I left by wrapping it all in Docker containers. There's a thing called Zero to Docker. You can just download it, push buttons, and the containers are all in Docker Hub. So, boom, you get all Netflix OSS on your laptop in seconds. And then you can go play with the one bit that you actually cared about without worrying about how everything else works. But it is a lot of stuff built by a lot of people over a lot of time, yeah. designed to solve big problems at scale. And yeah, maybe what you really needed was a Ruby on Rails box. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also an, there's also a, 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 an opinionated view of the world. I mean, Asgard to an extent is Netflix view on what an application should look like and how you should manage it. And it's actually, you know, when I'm looking at Kubernetes yeah, now. Cattle sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, and, but when you look at Kubernetes now, that's again, it's, it's that was Google's opinionated view of how you should yeah. be running services. And they don't line up, they're both valid, but they both come out of context. And so when you're looking at those systems, it's like you kind of have to understand a bit of the mindset behind those abstractions to understand how to use them yeah. well, I think. Yeah, the, the Google view of the world is significantly different to the Netflix view of the world. Um, and again, the Facebook view is again a little different. So yeah. there's, you can kind of go in different camps for different things, certainly. Um, if you want to build a monolith and run it really, really well and see how far you can push it, you go look at all the Etsy stuff. It's awesome what they've done. Um, it's not. Yeah, they've got a few services in there, but fundamentally, that's they've figured out the most efficient way to run a monolith at scale. Yeah. Um, and Netflix is kind of designed for a different design point where the efficiency of the system is, a little, is less important than the agility. And so it's just a different design point. And Facebook have done some amazing things with PHB, proving that you can do something amazing with almost anything out there. Yeah. It's, it's questionable. It's this Turing know. compete language thing, right? Well, you, you know, program it's anything just, and anything. And yeah, but it's, it's that whole, I, I do categorize some of these things in the just because you can doesn't mean you should camp, but nevertheless, yeah. I don't use. Facebook. I don't necessarily think that everyone should invent their own language <laughs> just to implement their system like they have with hack, I think they call yeah. it, right? Probably not necessary in most cases, yeah. but you know. If you've got 10,000 engineers and you've got the money to employ them building your own tool chain and build system, then you can go for it. Yeah. To some extent, the Netflix architecture, sort of AWS 2010, whatever you could have then, is what we had. That's what, that was when the architecture got mostly got baked. Um, there was no IAM for identity access management, so we had to hide that. So there's a bunch of things where it's actually relatively crude and it doesn't really leverage what you can do on a public cloud. Uh, VPCs, for example, is still in classics, isn't it, a lot of the stuff? Netflix um, keeps trying to move to VPC and actually broke, breaks something about it every time they try. So Netflix is actually too big to run on VPC, it turns out. Yeah. Um, there's a whole discussion around that. But they, they're still trying to figure out how to, some, in some ways, the architecture, the part of the architecture which scales up to a point is that every service has a security group with the same name, and to talk to that service, you have to join that security group. Mm. Some of the services are very popular and have hundreds of clients, so you end up with a security group with hundreds of entries, and it turns out that 
blows up at some point. You can't actually manage the firewall rules effectively for the, say, the subscriber service, which is the, one of the most popular ones, which is where everyone needs to talk to it. So having that be the flakiest one, right? Yeah. So, so if you end up pushing the firewall system into the point where it's actually beyond its design point, that's the problem. So it works reasonably well with a few hundred, but you can certainly take an architecture beyond the yeah. platform's ability to scale. And you probably should solve that in some different way, but it's certainly at a smaller scale, it's a very clean way of thinking about security. Um, so you're now at Battery Ventures, mm -hmm. and well, what's your role there? Because you're sort of, I mean, Battery Ventures are a fund, aren't they? They, they yeah. invest in tech startups, amongst well, other things. Two years ago, I was at Yao, and I was having discussions with a few people that were trying to recruit me and trying to decide should I stay at Netflix? Should I leave? I'd actually all chat to Dave Thomas mm. to kind of get his view on it. So I was consulting with a few friends of mine uh, very on the quiet, like, okay, so what would that look like and what should I do? And um, somewhere along the way, I called a friend of mine at one of the VC firms and he said, I think we can make a space for you because they've been talking about their need is at Battery Ventures to have more technology support so that they would attract interesting people to talk to them and they'd have more support for the portfolio companies to help them out. So that's what I do. Um, it's quite hard to join VC firms, much harder than you might think. They're looking for a very specific pattern. and I don't really fit the pattern, so I'm a bit of an exception. Um, the other person I know has pretty much the same job as me is Adrian Collier, who is the old CTO of SpringSource. So obviously being called Adrian may help. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> And being tall and English and called yeah, Adrian, yeah, yeah. it seems to be at least part of, I don't know quite if that's really what they were looking for. Um, Adrian Cole and Adrian Muat maybe one day. I, I, we'll I, see. We'll see if there so, is yeah, a yeah. general trend here somehow. Um, but that was what I ended up doing. Um, we joined. I, my job is partly outbound PR for the firm, so in the communities that matter. So I ended up doing a keynote kind of talk at DockerCon and that got us lots of interest from people in the Docker community come to talk to us now. We're very plugged into what's happening there. And occasionally somebody says they want to invest, want Battery to be, they want to take a, a check from Battery because I'm there. And maybe they'll take a smaller valuation than they would if, they, if I wasn't there. Yeah. Or something. Because so you can kind of like, that's a sort of an ROI because we end up with a slightly better deal. They end up in return getting me as a consultant to their CTO, helping them. And, and, and likewise. And, and the things I do, like move to cloud, make it more available, speed up development, um, make it scale, and product related things, particularly monitoring tools where I have a lot of background, mm. like helping monitor tools get better. Those are the primarily what I do. But, I mean, I imagine it's a lot of this is technical due diligence on yeah. behalf of battery in terms of But I was sort of doing, in the due diligence process, lots of, you call lots of people. I was one of the people that got called a lot for due diligence by, v, by various VC firms when they say, we're looking at this company, what do you think? Is it something Netflix would ever use? Why don't you use it? All that kind of stuff. Um, so I got to know quite a few VCs just by being the visible contact point for a fairly well-known brand mm. in, tech, in the technology space. So that's how I generated the contacts that got me the job in the end, right? Um, uh, uh, changing track slightly, 
Uh, I think you do, you've been doing your talks this year, sort of talking at the future of, of where a lot of stuff, the things, the things you think are coming, mm -hmm. coming in the future that we should be interested in. What are, the, what are your sort of top line highlights of things we should be paying? I mean, I got a few of them that I, I keep going on about. One, one is security and compliance. And people say, oh, we can't go to cloud because the compliance team won't let us do it. And I, my response is the compliance team should be having wet dreams about the cloud and begging you to go there. But when they realize what they can do in the cloud, that it's a totally different world. The compliance team shouldn't be running around with uh, doing interviews and with that, you know, notepads with checkboxes. They should be rummaging around in your audit logs that show the exact state of everything. So AWS config tells yeah. you the exact state and state history of your account. AWS, was it CloudTrail or something? Yeah. Every API call that's ever happened in an account. Uh, EDA is the black box flight recorder app that Netflix built that does the Amazon state plus the application state open source thing. Once you realize you can make strong assertions about the state of, a, of, a, of a, an entire account, which is like a whole data center, and you can make strong assertions about what happened in that over in the past, you are auditable. Yes. You have a total audit log history. And I know I think some of them are starting to realize that, and then you build tooling on that, and then you're continuously audited. They're not audited once a week, once a year, when make it shiny and have somebody turn up. So. My predict that's kind of where we are. People are starting to get that. Um, Jason Chan of Netflix did a good, there's a video of him doing a talk at reInvent, Amazon reInvent, on this subject, where he talks about what SOX and PCI really ask for and how to implement it in this new world. And they've gone through all of that stuff. So the, the credit card vault for Netflix is on AWS, on Cassandra, in its own account, all carefully managed and compliant. Right? So you can do this. Um, my future prediction is that in five years' time, you will not be able to pass compliance unless you do this. Like stuff that's still in the data center will be, treat, will be regarded as so insecure that you can't pass compliance unless you're in a fully provisioned, totally audited cloud account. Right. So that's kind of my kind of out, in, out of slightly out of some people's comfort zone, um, but you know, trying to push it a bit. So that's sort of where that, that's a, lot, a big blocker for a lot of enterprises and banks and things. But think about, what, just think about the trend. It's not exactly five years or whatever, yeah. but that we're getting there. Um, I've seen CIO of Capital One, Rob Anderson, said we can run more securely on AWS than we can on our own, in, in, in our own data centers. That's a big bank CIO yeah. in front of tens of thousands of people. Um, so that's one, and that's probably the, like the main like, thing that people think is like, if, if, a fantasy that's stopping people in some ways. The technology things are like serverless computing, AWS Lambda. Um, to some extent, if you squint at it, the Google App Engine is sort of similar. Mm. It's ephemeral containers that run things. It isn't stitched together with quite the same uh, concepts around it as Lambda, but they're, they're similar sorts of products. You could probably build, rebuild Lambda on top of App Engine yeah. and build something very similar. Uh, you could probably also build it on top of Docker you just get one-use containers. You yeah. wake up a node thing for long enough to run it, and then you shut that container down if it doesn't get another request within the next second or two. Um, so that, I think, is a interesting model, very highly secure, very locked down. You have to understand all the security roles and things to actually program it. Um, so the tooling around that's getting better. Somebody in one of my, I, think I did a tutorial on Wednesday and was talking about this. Somebody said they had a website that was cost about $100 a month to run. 
and they switched it to Lambda, and it's now costing less than a dollar a month to run. You pay PyCool, not per. Because you're paying. Network. It was. Just, it wasn't running very high traffic. It was just sitting there. Just needed a site, and it, they needed something to run it on. And with Lambda, the thing was, you know. But it's still, if you send it a huge burst of traffic, it will just scale up and handle it. So you don't need to pre-allocate your system to be big enough to handle your peak traffic. You just say, this is the functions I want to run, and it will generate enough machines to run it at whatever time it needs to be, down to zero when there's no traffic. So it just turns itself off. So it's the ultimate auto-scale application. So that's, that's kind of the microservices model mm -hmm. end of things. I think that's very interesting, but there's still tooling around it's a bit nascent. And then the other end of the scale, uh, I call Terra services, which is terabytes of memory. So we've got to go from one extreme to the other, right? Everyone always wants to flat from one end to the other. So I think that there's an interesting, uh, a number of different people are figuring out ways to build low-cost machines with huge amounts of memory. It's going to become more accessible. But one way it's going to become accessible is AWS has uh, announced but has yet to ship uh, a two, more than two terabyte instance size, the wow. X1. It's largely being driven by SAP wanting to run, wanting to run HANA in memory data, data analytics, but by the hour, right? I, I want to play when two, mem, two, gig, two terabytes of memory for an hour, for, I don't care how, many, how much that costs, right? Yeah. I, don't know what, I have no idea. They didn't say what it was going to cost. Probably quite a few dollars an hour. Yeah, right? but it's still, but yeah. Two terabytes. That's right? a lot you That's can do lot, with two terabytes. A lot, yeah, so, you can, so that means that people developing new things and people that don't have a big ops team and a big data thing can actually get these huge memory machines. So very large uh, non-partitionable graph databases. It's yeah. classic, right? Yeah. So what can you do in memory if you, can, if you build that graph? So I think there's some interesting stuff there. And that's going to change the world. The other thing is, what happens if these terabytes of memory is non-volatile? So if you're looking at what Intel's doing, they have a thing called 3D Crosspoint, which is faster than flash, slower than RAM, non-volatile memory. It's starting, people are playing with it. Probably during 2016, it'll start tumbling up on the PCI bus mm. plug-in. And probably in the main memory, maybe in 2017. Um, there's some techniques. There's a company we've invested in called Diablo, who have a thing called the Memory One. Because normal memory DIMMs are 16 gigabytes per DIMM. The super expensive ones are 32 gig, but they cost more than twice as much. Yeah. So they have a 128 gig DIMM and a 256 gig DIMM. And you put half and half. So you, you do half your memory with 16 gig DIMMs of, of RAM and the other half with 128 gig DIMMs of flash. And you build a very, very cost-effective, little over a terabyte system with a two-socket, 16-slot, cheapest, you know, the cheapest kind of Wow. When you, if that half a root, it's like half a rack server or something. So you can build out machines with terabytes of memory, and it basically shuffles data back and forth between RAM and flash, but it makes it look like flash. Look, look, makes it look like all RAM, and you can optionally, by tweaking the BIOS, make it non-volatile, but normally it's pretend, they sort of pretend it's volatile. Wow. So that's on-prem, so although some cloud vendors are starting to look at using that to, as behind the scenes mm. to give them lower cost memory options. But if your memory seems strangely slow, but it's very cheap, maybe that somewhere underneath it's being faked by a whole lot of flash being shuffled around for some vendor. So, um, well, Agent, thank you very much for your time. Yep. There's some awesome stuff to look at in the future. I'm going to put yep. links to your um, the flying 
spaghetti monster squid uh, <laughs> program we mentioned earlier. Microservices um, simulator. The microservices simulator. And we should all stay, I mean, I'm working on building Terra services now. Should be out in shops next week. Lots of Terra services. Lots of Christmas. Services. Terra services for Christmas. Terra services for Christmas. We need, a new, we need new buzzwords. We've had Docker Go and microservices this year. Yeah. We need new buzzwords. The hashtag Terra services generally only finds my tweets so right. far. So I'm, I'm working on creating that. I did once have millicomputing. Um, which I thought was a great name for a very low power computers that use milliwatts. And we've got mini computers, we've got microcomputers, but no one had actually used millicomputers. So I'm squatting on all the domains. So if anyone wants millicomputing, I have it. And Terra services. And Terra, I need to get Terra services. I should go, uh, shouldn't say that. Well, by the time this goes the domain, live, the domain before. will be gone. Yeah. All right, Adrian, thank you very much for your time. All right, cheers. So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can get more details, links and notes over at magpietalkshow.com. Please do leave a comment over at iTunes. It really does help other people find the show. And thanks to those of you who have done so, so far. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe at iTunes directly or go to magpietalkshow.com. And that way you'll never miss an episode. And until next time, have a great week.